Let's uh, read our passage of Scripture here. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to start in verse 21. This morning we're going to be talking about forgiveness. This is a tough topic because a lot of times when we talk about forgiveness, what we're really talking about is that somebody has hurt us deeply. And we're having to basically go to them and say, the debt is canceled. I'm not going to hold you, hold this over you anymore. I forgive you. I let go. Um, and that can be really hard to do. Starting in verse 21, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who had owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him, and he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he or what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Will you pray with me? Father, as we uh, begin our time together, uh, we we are... uh, God, just mindful of our brother, Freddie, and uh, just want to lift him up to you, God. We want to ask that, uh, God, you be with him and that you strengthen his body uh, for this surgery that he's about to have. And, uh, Father, we pray for the doctors that are going to be working on him and ministering to him, God. We pray that you give the doctors uh, just the skill that they need to be able to do their job with a high level of excellence um, God, we just pray that, that you would just, God, return his strength, God, that he might be able to return to us and, and just be strong and healthy, God. Uh, we just ask that for Freddie. Well, we also want to pray for Pastor Jason, God, as he's ministering this week in Kansas. Uh, we, we just thank you for him. We thank you for his ministry to us and uh, just for the way he blesses our church. And um, God, we pray that you would just, um, God, bless the church there through his ministry this week. And um, Father, last of all, we ask for your help this morning as we 
read your word together, as we study this passage together. God, we ask that you reveal in us, God, um, God, a heart um, that needs grace, that needs forgiveness. God, if, if, if that's where we're at this morning, that we're in the place of this wicked servant, God, who um, is full of guilt. God, that, that you'd open our eyes to see the great love and forgiveness that the king of the universe wants to give to us. Uh, and that has paid a great price to give to us. Um, God, open eyes to, to, to receive that love this morning. Lord, we pray also, God, that God, that those of us who have experienced that kind of love, that kind of forgiveness, Lord, we pray that we would have a spirit in this church of graciousness, of forgiveness. Lord, that, that we would relentlessly love people, God, no matter what, uh, no matter what they do, <laughs> God, that, that we would be forgiving. Lord, let that be a mark in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was kind of preparing this week for this, uh, this uh, story um, from Jesus' um, teaching, uh, Michelle is busy about the business of preparing small group questions for, uh, for some of you and, and making kind of sermon notes and inserts for the bulletin. And, and uh, so it's kind of a cool thing because um, my wife is super gifted. I'm so thankful for her. And uh, she comes up with some really great stuff. And she was sharing some of that stuff with me as I'm working on my sermon. And it was so helpful. And one of those things that she shared with me was a story that she found um, about a gentleman named uh, Simon Wiesenthal. Uh, and uh, this is a Jewish gentleman. Um, and uh, his story comes from uh, during the time period of World War II. And he was actually a prisoner in a concentration camp in a place called Limburg. And uh, he was selected at random, uh, he tells the story of being selected at random from a work detail and taken to a hospital room where there was a pitiful figure wrapped in blood-stained bandages lying on a bed. Uh, this is a hospital room, kind of specially for the guards there uh, at the concentration camp. And in this hospital room, uh, this gentleman, it was a German officer, and his name was Carl. And in a trembling voice, he told Simon his story. And when he spoke of a terrible atrocity, uh, then he spoke of a terrible atrocity when his unit herded all the Jews from one village into a wooden building and put fire to all 150 Jews. Some of them, their clothes and hair ablaze, leaped from the second floor, and the SS soldiers, he among them, shot them as they fell. He started to tell of one child in particular, a young boy with black hair and dark eyes, but his voice gave way. Several times, Wiesenthal tried to leave the room, but every time, the mummy-like figure would reach out with a cold, bloodless hand and constrain him. Finally, Carl explained why he had summoned the Jewish prisoner. He had asked a nurse whether any Jews still existed. He wanted to ask for forgiveness for all his crimes against the Jews. Wiesenthal stood in silence for a long time, staring at the man's bandaged face. At last, he made up his mind. He turned around 
and just left the room without saying a word. The soldier was left to die in torment, unforgiven. Wiesenthal finished this story with a question. If you were in my place and you and your people have suffered as much as I did from these Nazi soldiers, what would you have done? It's a hard question. This is, from what I understand, I think this is actually the beginning of a book that Wiesenthal uh, has written. It's, I think it's called um, The Sunflower. And so that's kind of, I think, the introduction of the book. And then he had written a bunch of famous people uh, and asked them to answer his question, uh, kind of at the end of the story. And maybe we wonder, man, how, how should we respond? That's a tough question. And as I thought about this parable, I thought, wow, isn't it kind of fitting that in this story, really, what we find is another Jewish man, Peter, is asking our Lord really kind of a similar question. He's asking the Lord, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Can't you hear the overwhelming generosity and care in Peter's voice as he asks this question? Here is a generous and loving guy, right? The model of Christ-like love for all to see. Perhaps Peter was expecting another pat on the back from Jesus and that Jesus would maybe exclaim in joy at Peter's statement and say, Blessed are you, Simon Peter. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Or maybe he was expecting Jesus to kind of stand back and his jaw to drop and, and, and look at Peter with amazement and say, Whoa, whoa, just hold on, Peter. Let's not go overboard here. Okay, forgiveness is good. You're right. But seven times is a little excessive. Five or six you're good. <laughs> but Jesus didn't respond in, in either of those ways. Peter's keeping count like many of us, isn't he? We're, we're counters. We like to count things. We like to kind of keep track. I think that's part of our human nature somewhat. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of you probably like me have been following the Olympics and uh, I think it's funny, as I, I was thinking about this sermon this week, I, I thought about several times about, you know, you, you watch the Olympics at night, and the final thing at the end of every, you know, every Olympic day, you know, the broadcaster, Bob Costas, comes on, or whatever his name is, and, and he's like, all right, you know, as we close, we're going we're gonna to close out with the medal count, and they post the medal count on, on the screen, right? So, so you get to see all the countries lined up, and, uh, and the medal count and how how many gold medals and how many silver medals and who's ahead which country has the most medals um and uh i don't know about you but i'm always looking on the list and i i almost do it without thinking about right, where's where's us on there are we on the top oh we're not you know and you know there's kind of disappointment if our country's not on top uh, but we like to count we count wins we count losses we count um 
we, we count attendance and we count offerings. Sometimes you'll come in here and you'll see our attendance on the attendance board. Um, we have people here at Lincoln Avenue that have a really important job. Forget about all that other stuff. But they count donuts, okay? And that's important, right? And, and then after we eat our donuts, we have to count some more, right? Because we have to count calories, right? We've got to count calories. Oh, no. You know, I've got to do this much this week to burn off my calories. So we may kind of look at this teaching on forgiveness... And I think our tendency is to think that we get this. Yeah, I'm a forgiving person. I'm not the kind of person that holds a grudge, at least not to anybody, towards anybody that doesn't deserve it, right? And and so I'm a pretty, pretty generous person, and, and I get this idea of forgiveness. And Jesus replies which I think he is shooting right at our hearts with this, because he knows our hearts. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And some of your translations, you maybe would, it would say like seven times 70 or something like that. And the reason why there's kind of that variation is, is this kind of a tough, it's worded in a way that's kind of tough to translate. Um, And really the heart behind it, every commentary that I read, everything I read on this, they all agree that the intention of it was, it's, it's like a saying. It's basically Jesus saying, hey, there is no limit. There isn't a number. There is no cap. I'm pulling the lid off of forgiveness. Jesus, all through the gospel of Matthew, he's talking about a kingdom. Several times he mentions this kingdom all throughout the gospel of Matthew. And and he's he's saying, hey, the kingdom of God, I'm going to compare it. I want you to see what the kingdom of God is like compared to the world that you live in. Because I'm getting ready. I'm here to bring in a brand new way of living. A brand new way of looking at life. A brand new way of loving people. I'm starting something brand new here. And if you want to be a citizen in this kingdom, this is what it's like. And I'm going to challenge the way you naturally think. He starts the parable, he starts the story with the king, right? And this king, he calls the servants to account. He's he's calling all his servants in and, and he has this authority to say, hey, bring everybody in. We're going to settle. We're going to settle things here. We're going to look at everybody. And as we think about that king, we we know that that king represents who? The God of the universe, right? Jesus isn't just talking about just some random king here. He's saying, hey, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And the king of the kingdom of heaven is God. And God has the authority. and, And we have no control over this. He can call you and I to account anytime he wants to. Anytime he wants to, God can say, ah. Your turn, Andrew. Come here. We're going to have a heart to heart. And he knows our hearts. He sees right through us. That's our king. Whether we want to submit to that authority today or not, one day we're all going to answer to the king. This is a little frightening to think about. (laughs) 
a little intimidating. But apparently the king is doing a little counting of his own. And as he's counting, he finds a guilty servant in this story. And, and I, again, I've read some different things. And, and as I've been reading and studying this week, um, everybody agrees that 10,000 talents is a bunch of money. <laughs> it's a bunch of money. Uh, and I kind of tried to do some research. I'm kind of a math guy. That was I got part of my degree in math. And, and so I kind of like, like counting and I'm always wondering how much something is. And, uh, in, in your Bible, some of you may have a little note that, that talks about what a talent is. And my Bible says a talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages. Uh, so 20 years worth of wages is one talent. And how many talents are we talking about? 10,000. So kind of a helpful way for me to get my head around that was I was thinking, okay, so this is, man, 20 years worth of wages for 10,000 hardworking dudes, guys that are swinging hammers, guys that are out in the field working their tails off. 10,000 of those guys, 20 years worth of wages to pay those guys. That's a lot. That's a lot. John MacArthur shares in his commentary, uh, he just kind of gives some historical context for this. I uh, did some research and found out uh, there's actually records from the Roman government doing taxes and different things like that in that time period. And as he did, did this research, what he came up with, with was for the four provinces of Idumea, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, that the annual taxes collected by the Roman government from those four provinces combined was 900 talents. So here are these four pretty large provinces, okay? And every year, 900 talents is collected from them for taxes. So that's 11 years worth of taxes to get close to 10,000 talents. Uh, this is an unimaginable amount of money. Uh, another guy, this kind, he tried to put it in money in our day. Uh, another guy named James Boyce did some math. And in his commentary, he came up with $3 billion is roughly kind of a, a comparison to what, uh, what this amount of money would come to. Um, the point of all of this seems to be pretty clear. Jesus is saying, this guy owed a debt that is ridiculously unpayable. There's no way this guy could ever possibly... In fact, it, it seems even ridiculous that one guy could actually accrue such a debt. Um, I mean, even if he was just burning it. I mean, just like, it would take him a long time to do that. Um, this is a ton, a ton of money. And really, the bottom line seems to be just to demonstrate... Our unfathomable sin before a holy God. Our debt that we owe God because of our rebellion. Um, there's no ability for us to repay that debt. Let's pause a moment here. And I couldn't help but as I was studying this week, I just had to pause here for a moment. Um, because I guess I started to think about, all right, have I found myself there before? Have I found myself in the place of this servant, exposed, humiliated, guilty. There's no denying my guilt. There's nothing to be said. 
I am ruined. (laughs) And there's no possible way for me to repay the debt I owe. You long to just kind of escape or to run away if you could. You feel buried beneath the weight of it all. Because our shame is so great. And as I thought about that, I thought, man, that's, that's a really essential part of the gospel, isn't it? Because otherwise, the cross seems a little excessive. Um, that Jesus, the Son of God, would have to come and die. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's not done anything wrong. But to suffer under the full wrath of God. Seems excessive if your sin, my sin, is really not that big a deal. If we've not really done that much wrong, if we're really not that bad, man, wait a second, why why are you doing that to Jesus? Why does Jesus have to die that way? Well, it's because our debt really is that bad. Our sin really is that bad. Our guilt really is that great. It demands. It demands the wrath of God to come and to fall. And Jesus stands in our place. And he absorbs God's wrath in our place. All of it. All of it. Romans 3.10 is a great passage of scripture uh, just on how I think God sees our sin. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. That phrase right there just kind of hits me. Here we are. Standing before the holy, perfect God of the universe. Our guilt is laid out before him and every mouth is stopped. There's nothing to say. I am guilty. I am guilty. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So great is our infraction and the infraction of the servant in the story that he has nothing with which to pay his debt. There is no arguing over his guilt or the measure of his sin. As we consider our sin, we must consider ourselves in his place. We are poor, wretched, and no possible way of redeeming our own souls. Romans 3.23, kind of a popular passage of scripture that that we uh, look at um, with our teen kids. We actually ask them to memorize this passage of scripture. It says, for all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. This is our place before God. Yet, in a surprising twist in the story, the king shows overwhelming and shocking benevolence to this wicked servant. He wipes his debt clean. He sets him free. All of it. Gone. Done away. No more debt. You're forgiven. And the beautiful reality here that Jesus is painting for us is he's saying, that's what the king of the universe is like. He looks at your sin and mine. And he says, I forgive it. I'm going to absorb the cost of your debt. With my vast treasury, with my vast riches, I'm going to take care of it. Now, this was very costly. And that's what the cross shows us. It was very costly for the king of the universe to simply wipe out our debt with his own blood, with his blood that was precious. This is the kind of forgiveness that God shows us. The Apostle Paul gets this. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord overflowed. I like that word. The grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul gets his guilt. He knows he's a guilty guy. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I think it's cool that Paul finishes with that king picture. (laughs) Kind of brings us back to our story, doesn't it? The king of the universe. He takes care of our debt. He forgives us. You know, as, as we're reading this story and uh, as we're looking at the scriptures, do you think, I, I kind of asked this question to myself. It's like, did Jesus really intend for us to understand this forgiveness in this story as a picture of God's forgiveness for us? Is that really his intent that we would understand that, yeah, God sees our debt, he sees our guilt, and he says, forgiven. I forgive. I'm going to take care of all of our debt, all of your debt. And I kept thinking of some Old Testament passages. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 10 through 12 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Listen to this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions for us. Yeah, I think he does intend for us to understand it this way. That our God removes our sin so far from us, as far as the east is from the west. That's the kind of forgiveness that our God promises us. And if the story stopped here, we would have much to be thankful for. If, if we just stopped with having our debt paid and our shame being cast into the depths of the sea, 
and realizing, all right, now we can have a home in heaven, we would be afforded enough to celebrate for all eternity. But this is the amazing thing. This is only half the story. In fact, I think it's not even the best half of the story. Because Christ's forgiveness for us gives us something even greater than just forgiveness. It gives us God. It gives us God. God says, you are mine and I am yours. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, I know that word reconciliation is not really a word that we use in our everyday language. But the idea there is that God is taking us who was, we were enemies with him. We were separated from him. And he's saying, not anymore. You're not my enemy anymore. You are now my friend. You are now, you belong to me. I love you. Romans eight fifteen through 17 describes that reconciliation even a little bit further. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's what that reconciliation does for us. It makes us sons and daughters of the king of the universe. That's reconciliation. God rescues us from our sin. He pays our debt and he gives us himself. Now, this story just gets really shocking and crazy here uh, and just plain weird. Because <laughs> the unmerciful servant, he receives this forgiveness, all right? The king gives him this forgiveness and he walks out of the throne room. And the first thing he does as he's walking out of the throne room is he sees another servant who owes him a debt. And his response to that servant is to grab him around the neck, demand payment immediately, and then he has him thrown in prison. Weird. (laughs) Just weird. Now, the denarius, again, kind of going back to our, our, our looking at the Bible and, and what this word means, is, is one day's wage for a laborer. So one day's wage is a denarius. This is a hundred days wages. So this is just under one third of a year's wages for your common laborer. Uh, so that, it's not an insignificant amount of money. It's not just like a dollar. I mean, this is, this is quite a bit of money. But still we would expect on the heels of basically getting his life back. I mean, he was condemned. He was basically game over. Life is done as you know it. And now he's free. He's free to go. One would expect some mercy or some empathy or sympathy. But our sinful human nature tends towards, I think kind of exaggerating the faults of others and their shortcomings 
while at the same time minimizing our own shortcomings. Um, I read this passage this week. This is Jesus talking about uh, forgiveness again. And he says, why do you seek, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Uh, There's a contrast there where, all right, my sin, even though it's a big log, I don't even notice it. It's in my eye, but I just don't even notice it. But that little speck that's in my brother's eye across the room, I can see that and I'm going to get it out. I need to fix him. And I don't think it's trying to tell us that we don't try to help our brother. But I think it's, it's reminding us that, hey, man, first, before you go to help your brother, you need to remember, man, God has given you incredible forgiveness. You have incredible problems and issues yourself. And it's only because of Jesus that you can be made right. And I think when we live that way, it makes us a little bit more gentle with our brother, doesn't it? It it makes us a little bit more understanding because we know what it means to be forgiven. We know what it means to be loved. Well, the, the parable ends in a really frightening and uncomfortable way. The servant gets called back in before the king because he won't forgive and he's thrown in prison. What a sad story. He just can't forgive. Not only does it seem that the servant won't forgive his fellow servant, but, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm just kind of trying to put put two and two together. And it, it almost seems like the way he leaves... The way that he leaves the the throne room of the king, it almost seems like he still thinks he's trying to pay the king back. Because it's like, all right, he's like, all right, how am I going to pay the king back for this? You know, and so, where can I get money? Ah, you owe me money. You know, I need that. I need to pay the king back. You know, and it's, it's this mindset of still thinking that he needs to pay back the king. He doesn't understand. The debt is forgiven. Something is obviously terribly amiss. Um, It seems that the point of Jesus is that when we aren't forgiving to others, then it really calls into question whether or not we've truly received the forgiveness of Christ in the first place. Have, Have we really understood the love and the forgiveness that God has shown us? If we treat others this way, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Whenever I think about forgiveness, I can't help but think back to a story I read years ago uh, about Corey Tenboom. A lot of you guys have probably heard this story. This will be familiar to you. Uh, but I'm going to read it. Corey Tinboom uh, also lived during World War II, and um, she and her sister, uh, they actually would house and protect Jewish people in their home. They hid them there uh, during the, the Nazi occupation of Holland, and uh, so they were you know, looking to arrest Jews, basically take them to, uh, to these concentration camps, and so they hid Jews there. And as a result of their activity, um, this illegal activity, Corey and her sister would end up 
in a concentration camp um, during the war. After the war, Corey survived and she would go around preaching or sharing about the forgiveness of Christ. Uh, And she tells this story of one of her times that she shared. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never answers or never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. She sees this gentleman in the crowd coming towards her, and she sees him in his clothes as he is uh, at that moment. But then she sees his face, and when she sees his face, she has this flashback, and she recognizes him that this guy was a guard at the camp that she was in. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein... Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition. That we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. 
I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of, of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Closing. Christians, we can learn a lot from our sister Corey about forgiveness. Again, Jesus says, there is no lid on forgiveness. There's not a count. I have forgiven you. Your debt is gone. It's paid. I paid for it with my blood. I want you to forgive that way. I want you to love that way. Lastly, uh, what I would say is maybe there's some here this morning and you've yet to experience the love and the forgiveness of Christ. The king wants to forgive your debt. The king wants to reconcile you to himself. His love is freely given. Receive it. Trust in Christ. Receive his sacrifice for your sin. Receive his payment for your debt. The guilt can be removed. And we get, we get God. We get to be sons and daughters of the king.